0: Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for this summertime and this chance to fellowship and eat together and study the Word. We'd ask that you would bless our time in it, that we'd be given good things from Solomon, and we would be able to face up to some of the deep things he considers. In your son's name, amen. Well, uh, we were talking a little bit beforehand about the name of Ecclesiastes. Its real name is Koheleth meaning the preacher, uh, as in the first verse, the words of the preacher. Uh, the, the Greek version, uh, as they tried to put a Greek name to it, came up like Ecclesia, meaning assembly, um, member of the assembly, or something like that is what Ecclesiastes means. Um, but you'll sometimes see it referred to as Kohaleth in other translations uh, rather than Ecclesiastes. Um, it doesn't ever say who the writer is. It is traditionally Solomon, um, and there are signals in the text as to why we think Solomon. They would occur in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's limits the asset of potential. Of course, a lot of kings down line from David, uh, but, uh, he's king, um, in Jerusalem. And in verse 12, it says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And by the time you get to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the king over Israel was in uh, Jezreel, not in Jerusalem. And the king in Jerusalem was king over Judah, not over Israel. So there's a strong suggestion that uh, this is in that very short period of time between and only David was the first king over Israel in Jerusalem. Solomon was the last king over Israel in Jerusalem, um, uh, when, at which time Jeroboam took the northern tribes and, and uh, formed Israel. Uh, the other aspect that would make us um, consider that uh, it is Solomon is in verse 16. I said to myself, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, well, we all, we all know his proverbial, no pun intended, wisdom. Um, groans from the cheap seats. Um, in 1 Kings 3 uh, is the scene where Solomon is given a wisdom by God. You know, f- verse 3, he's at Gibeon offering sacrifices with the great high place. And he asked, God asks him to pick something he wants. And he says, I don't, I'm too young. I don't know stuff. Why don't you make me smart? And it pleased the Lord, verse 10, that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. So whatever the, the claimant in verse 16 I I've been surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. If he were after David and after Solomon, he'd be claiming that God's promise to Solomon wasn't true. That no one would come after him wiser than he, and this guy is claiming to be wiser than all over Jerusalem before him. So it pretty much has to be Solomon. And there's really no problem with it being Solomon. Um, when you get down to it and look at the Song of Solomon, the Proverbs, it the philosophy makes pretty good sense. Um, so with that let's get down to business on the on the text itself. Now our our plan is to go through three chapters a week, 12 chapters, uh, which means we're not going to do this with every possible um, nuance of every pretty extreme bit of thought that Solomon puts out there on the page. We're trying to be, in some sense, an introduction to sort of utilitarianism uh, uh, and how Christians ought to think about it. <laughs> now, um, the second verse <coughs> is pretty much your theme, and you, you know this. You've, you've either read Ecclesiastes, you've heard it quoted. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Some will use the word meaningless. I think the NIV says meaningless. I think um, King James says futility. No, it may say vanity. One of them says futility. Um, It's not a cheery uh, introduction. I remember back in 72 I was talking to a friend who worked in our ministry here in town um, in the bookstore, Ben Hyde, and he had just finished reading Ecclesiastes and I was uh, 18 year old and and he said uh, don't ever read ecclesiastes it's really depressing so i looked up to him he'd been my sunday school teacher back in annapolis so yeah okay i won't read that portion of the bible if you say it's depressing um, so i didn't for many years and when i finally did and it wasn't depressing but a tremendous book i mean just a uh, for people who see the the, the crisis descending on them with futility or meaninglessness, staring at them in the face. And the second line, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? You have the theme, which is the vanity, and the question on the plate in the first three verses. What does a man gain? And once you get past Solomon's path to his understanding, which we'll cover tonight, his, his what he goes through to get to his understanding, Uh, you'll come out the other side if you are willing to accept it, if you have ears to hear, if you can say, yes, I can embrace futility and come out of this rejoicing, um, you're going to see this as one of the greatest things you've ever uh, one of the greatest things you've ever read. He has this poetic section that comes next. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Round and round goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. That's rather nice, kind of poetic. Then he says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. in case you tried to escape. He even lays hold of the future and says, and you guys, in the future, you're going to look back at this and go, yeah, same-o, same Now, this is a, you know, a lot of people in the West uh, have a hard time with a circular view of history. Uh, Eastern, like Chinese thought and those sort of things would have a cyclical view. Western has a linear view. It tends to think of itself going down through time in a progressive arc, moving up to the great utopia that the uh, man will create. Uh, even if you're a Christian, you have this you know, maybe a post-millennial view that's linear in time. Things were past, things are future, we're going somewhere. Uh, oriental minds tend to work it in circular; Maybe spiral is a better, a, a better look at it. It's going around. It just keeps repeating itself. And Solomon puts his hand to that and it says, on every axis, there is this constant repeat of everything you have ever seen. And not only that, but when it passes you, when the now passes you, you that meal you just had, um, it's f- largely forgotten. The, the pleasure you had, now it's just feeling stuffed. You'll not feel stuffed later. You'll feel sweaty and lie on top of your bed. Um, Tomorrow you'll have another meal and it will be forgotten, just as quickly. And guess what? I won't remember, none of us will remember the next meal you have. We won't even think of you. The whole world is dropping through our senses. Everything comes into us. Do you realize, I was talking to Graham about this today at lunch, how much data your eyes are taking in that I don't know how many computers it would take to process the amount of particular data that your eyes take in, in a nanosecond. And yet, your mind then flushes it. Everything that you just saw, just now, is gone. Now it's the new now. And the past, you can't, you take a photo, you got this little, I don't know how many pixels cameras can get up to nowadays. It's not a lot compared to your eyes. And you take a snapshot, and you have this little shorthand memory of what was. And if you had photographs of every day of your life, you ever see those photos online? Someone takes a picture of their face every day for a year, they grow in their hair or something like that. Shorthand of their life. And everybody, everyone, all the sensation is watching this stuff wash through them, and the eye sees but is never filled. Or is it, it it's, it's never satisfied, and the ear is never filled. It just keeps hearing, seeing new things. It's got to flush all that went before out of you. It goes into that little recycle can in the corner of your screen, and you've got to get in there and flush everything out. It, and it's automatic. And, it's, and, and Solomon says, you know, you think that you're going somewhere, and you're not. There's nothing new. And so what about the iPad? Well, you think Solomon, well, it's only been recently that we've shown how we got new things. They, had, they went from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. That was a big deal. The alphabet, that was huge. You, everything else was cuneiform, hieroglyphs, pictographs. Finally, somebody got 26 letters, and you could shape anything out of them. It was remarkable. The iPad's nothing. Compared to the, ba- the major shifts that have happened in what man can do, but you could go to a Stone Age tribe today that never had an iPad, never had an alphabet, never moved from bronze to iron, and you're going to find people you recognize because they're just the same as you. All the problems they have in the tribe, just like the problems we have in DC, it's just how much money's involved and how big are the weapons. That's it. We have storage devices. We have file cabinets. They don't. But it's always the same. And the world keeps on turning in a circular motion. And you come back around. The next sun comes up. The next month comes by. The next year. I don't know if it's God being mean that he makes years circular. But there you have it. And, and, and Solomon is letting you know That everything you think he wants to strip you of any conceit and he gets to that at the end of the book that this is the stripping of man's conceit about what he can erect in this world what he can build he wants to let you know there's no remembrance of former things now I was I was a history major got my degree in history I love history history is a myth History is a. Oh, I think the things I know about did happen, but it's such shorthand. We have to go back into history and write history in terms of some idea we place on it. Was religion or economics or or uh, class struggle? What was the defining element of the historic shifts? And we have these shorthand uh, simplifications. If we tried to process one moment. Anywhere in history, completely, like God could see it, your head would blow up. You, you, you don't have the ability to really write history there's, because there's no remembrance. And for us, you know, Joe and Jan common person, or are they, is it Doe? Jo, John Doe and Jane Doe? We're nobodies. Your kids might remember you if they go through the photo album after you're dead. <laughs> oh, I remember what the old guy looked like. Yeah, well, that brings back memories because you have forgotten even your own family members. And people cling to that aggressively and Solomon is tearing it from your pudgy little fingers. And, and anything you might attempt to do, teach a Bible study in your backyard to 35 people, greatness at hand, it isn't. You better not forget this. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my mind to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the sons of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. Remember, he told you back in verse 3, what is our gain? What are we doing here? What are we getting out of this? What is a man's gain for all the toil you put into life? His basic theme, as I'm getting to, is it's vain. It's pointless. And I studied it, he says. Now, I know you guys are smart people. This is a college town. You guys are... I've talked to all of you. You have reasonably good chops. You can form a sentence. You're not Solomon. Solomon went ahead of you and checked. He scouted the terrain. He's going to tell you about that in the next paragraph or so. But he says, "Uh, I've come back from the future, basically, I've come back to let you know this is a pretty unhappy business. Look at that lineup. Unhappy, vain, irreparably bent, and infinitely lacking. Cannot be numbered how much it lacks. Cannot fix how bent it is. I said to myself, verse 16, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me and my mind has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge and I applied my mind to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive this also is but striving after wind for in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is a guy who's in the business of wisdom. This is a guy who writes Proverbs, and arranges Proverbs, and publishes Proverbs. People visit him from other places in the world because he's so smart. Really rich, really smart, probably good looking by the standards of the age, which was fat and oily, (laughs) which I kind of like, but
1: uh,
0: Solomon has he wants to let you know these are thematic, uh, you might say, you know, at the beginning of your essay that you're right for English 104. And you state your case right at the beginning. This is what I'm trying to show. And then you start getting, He's structuring that way. He says, look folks, I've thought about stuff. And I'm smarter than anybody you ever met. And it's dark out there. It's really ugly. What are we doing when it's this ugly? And even the stuff I'm good at, Wisdom, it just increases the vexation. Because my wisdom is what told me this was bent irreparably and infinitely lacking and unhappy and, uh, what was the last one? Vain. That's what wisdom taught me. Ignorance is bliss, I think, is the, the contrary. If I stay stupid, I can believe the commercials. You ever notice how good looking the people in the commercials are? Have you ever met? Have you ever been in a group of friends that you suddenly looked up and go, oh, my gosh. Every one of these people, and they all use the products that were sold to them, you're all that beautiful. Nobody is, right? I was, uh, Graham and I were talking about this. Uh, It was Veterans Day at Happy Days restaurants. Free lunch. So I have my dog tags on me so I can prove I was a vet. And uh, we were talking about those commercials of those uh, workout Videos, P-Zone, or whatever they p 90 P90X. And these people are acting like before, after, before, after. And they're saying, look at my abs. Right? As if those perfect abs made a perfect life. Have you met people with perfect abs? I have. They're rotters. They're miserable in all sorts of other areas. Their life is ruined, and they're dying. Just like the rest of us. Now, we'd like to, in our ignorance, believe all the lies both history tells us. Remember, history is a myth. We don't really remember what happened. We select what happened and we write a history for ourselves about what happened. See ya. What was it about? Was it that verse 18? It was
1: the perfect uh, <laughs> on, on that note, <laughs>
0: my work here is done. <laughs> Um, the, uh, there's a comfy chair down front um, what were we talking about
1: app, perfect abs app.
0: <laughs> <It's> obviously <laughs> you guys are mixed up <laughs> Read Sol- for every night you watch TV read Solomon one time do not believe what they tell you if they're wrong, they're lying to you and we try to build, in our ignorance, without this willingness to accept futility, this un- unhappy business that we have been given to do, this bentness that's not reparable, this infinitely lacking experience. And we um, want to believe that it, Pollyanna sort of ways that, that, you know, press little dimples into your cheeks and, and run around and be happy. You say, well, aren't we Christians? Aren't we supposed to be happy? Yeah, we'll get to that. But... But you've got to admit first. You've got, you got to embrace what the Lord says through Solomon. Remember, God gave Solomon this wisdom. He wasn't just being Socrates in the Middle East. He wasn't just... And when you think about it, by the way, this is 1000 BC, 970-ish, 9, 950 thereabouts. 950 BC. He's um, well, got a date for Socrates. We're, we're dealing with the golden age of Greece, 350. Um, much later, so 600 years after Solomon, Solomon is thinking his way through, with God's help, things that we've got to admit to. <coughs> now, you ever think, I made a note here, life is not like the brochure they put out about life. And sometimes we run into the brick wall at that whole midlife crisis thing, you know, man. You know, you to realize that, hold it, wasn't everything supposed to turn out and my children rise up and call me blessed and, and uh, some such thing uh, honored by my fellow man and really I'm just a drudge going through life until I die. And we begin to realize those things without the help of embracing a philosophy that, en- that engages with it. Because Solomon goes through this, we've got to get to that. But it's not like the brochure. <coughs> Now, what we do with life, basically life, uh, and I I don't mean to act like this phrase sums everything up, because I'm sure in a discussion you could come up with other things as well. There's really what we experience, what we do, and what we think about what we do. two simple categories you could break life down into for simplicity's sake. What you do, and what you think about what you do, opinion about it. You're not a rock sitting on the hillside just doing. You're thinking about what you're doing. You're not a bunny rabbit who does things and perhaps thinks in a bunny-like way. But you've got more craft about you, and so you um, are trying to put together reasons for everything. So what we're facing as your ultimate questions in life, if that's a legitimate demarcation, you're doing stuff and you're thinking about what you're doing. So what you're doing has to do with how you feel. Pleasure, pain. We move ourselves to not put our hand on the hot stove, put sunscreen on when you go to Granite Point, um, drive not erratically. What other things do you not do? Shuffle through the living room with the lights off, with your shoes off. Because why? You say, I don't want pain. I don't want to crack my little toe on the edge of the coffee table. So I adjust what I'm doing by what's pleasurable and what's painful. I, me- I measure the value of everything I do in terms of what gain and what det- merits and demerits. Detri- de- is that right? Demerits and merits? And that, that, an animal will do that, right? He will <laughs> we'll stay away from the switch. Will will kick against the goads. Uh, man also is facing... How he thinks about, what does he process those things are? So wisdom and folly. And in the next section, Solomon is dealing with his trying to figure out, remember his question, what's good for a man to do? So how should I think and what should I do? What gain can I get by thinking or by doing? I said to myself, chapter 2, come now. I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. Now, going on ahead of you, some believers think that Solomon is listing his debauchery. Well, it doesn't actually talk of it in a debauched way there's nothing in this section that really is wrong uh, because he's not saying, I'm getting plowed. Because he says, my, I'm still guiding myself with my mind. My mind's still guiding me with wisdom. I'm not just going out there and turning to alcohol and, a, and alcohol poisoning as a, as a recreational um, uh, effort. He's saying, I'm, I'm cheering myself with, the you know, we've those of you who drink a, a beer or wine know that that beer or wine or whatever it is you drink adds to the conviviality of the moment, your sense of ease, your loquaciousness, without you getting um, disobedient to God and getting drunk. So we're not. You, you, if you think that Solomon was over the line in some of these things, that's fine. I, I don't think it's really the point. Other than he's saying, I'm just looking at pleasure the enjoyments of things that men do, the things that we set ourselves to achieve, uh, to see if that was the thing to do. And how to lay hold of folly, till I might see what was good. For the sons of men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Because when the question of pleasure and pain arrives, maybe you've known me long enough to know that I'm part of my social philosophy has to do with this, and, and the idea that Men are often tempted, and women are often tempted to, um, when they know that that's the basic choice, stop the pain, increase the pleasure, they think in terms of how much inventory of each. Do I have a lot of pleasure and little pain? That's their simple equation. If I have a bigger stack of pleasure than I have of pain, I win. Well, that's what Solomon's looking at. He says, I want to see what's good. And I'm going to see if I, and he, remember, You think, because you're middle class, what's the basic thing about life? I just lost the Windstar. It is gone. It needs a new engine. I'm not buying it a new engine. Futility. It is natural for man to think, well, really, what we need is a car. Or what we really need is a lot of money so we can get a new car. And if only I won the lottery, I would get a new car. Or if only I I suddenly became world famous for something. I'm not sure what. Soccer. Soccer. (laughs) Uh, A a really good soccer player. Um, I'm just dreaming, John. Just dreaming. We think because we're in the middle of life and we're not Solomon, we're not a divine right despot in some Oriental nation propped up on pillows with a 1,000 wives, 700 wives, 300 concubines, and slaves coming up and, and, and bathing your feet in gold or stuff like that, feeding you grapes. Anything you wanted to have happen, kill that man, and they're dead. All that power, all that money, all that ability, and um, we don't have that. So we still hope, we still can believe the lie that if we only had more of this pleasure, it'd work out. I'd be happy then. That's what people think. They go down to the convenience store and buy a lottery ticket because they think that all their problems will go away if they get enough money, as much money as Solomon. Well, Solomon went before us. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees and quail. (laughs) I made myself pools from which to water a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who were before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold. And the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, man's delight. Yippikaye. He got the highest pile of pleasant goods. You can imagine. One man living out every available pleasantry. He had great parks to walk in, a great yard, somebody else taking care of it. Singers that just sort of stood behind curtains and sang him songs, like piped in iPod music. He had people that had to do it for him, not because you're late, you don't have enough money to force that band to play for you, that you have on your eye. You're going to have a recording. He could force the band to play for him. And lots of concubines. Now you might have your difference about concubinage, but you know, it's one of the things that men want. the desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, all of it was here at his disposal. And he ran it out there. He says, I also became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also, my wisdom remained with me. Not only was I good looking, rich, I was smart. And the chicks dug me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. You say, ah, oh, there's a pleasantness going by. He's, it does really feel good. You ever notice that about pleasure? That it feels good? You ever, do you have a higher opinion of pleasure than pain? It's not just, oh, that's pain. That's, no, I like this one more. My wife, it's big on back rubs. If I graze her back in passing, just walking down the hall, an elbow drags slightly across her back. She stops like a cat and does you know, starts arching it like something's going to happen. Now, if I punched her every time I passed her, she wouldn't stop. She'd duck every time, right? Because pain's worse than pleasure. You know that perfectly well. That's why sin works so well, right? Sin goes okay. More pleasure. Let's go past God's limits in our pursuit of this because we want that. Pleasure is pleasurable. Nobody's denying that. Solomon at no point goes, you know, this pleasure doesn't feel good. No, he says, no, this pleasure really does. That's what I got. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Because remember, everything's circular. And every moment of pleasure, every glass of wine, every date with your concubines, every whatever it is you were out there doing, whatever stroll in the park in the midst of your palace lawn, it was gone. You couldn't keep it. You never got satisfied. The eye could see but not be satisfied. You can't keep shoving Beethoven into your ear until you finally reach the point and you go, ah, okay, that's it. I have heard all the beauty I need to hear. I'm sated. You're not sated. Time goes on. And you proceed. And it fades. And you can't even remember it. So you get an album. And even if you tried to play the album of Beethoven twice, it would start to sound a little icky about the third time through in one day. Ever read that section in Paralandro where Ransom is tasting that fruit, and it's almost orgasmic in its pleasure, and it's innocent, and it's good, and it's tasty, and he thinks about having another, and then he realizes how vulgar that would be. Well, that was a pretty wise, it was a great wisdom moment, but it plays into this moment, this moment-by-moment situation. You could be the richest, wisest, greatest man on the planet, feeding yourself delectable things all the time and it's just as futile and just as vain and just as passing and you gain nothing. You have these gardens well what, what's, what did you get? You didn't, weren't able to hold on to any of the common things that are, have been there since the creation. Adam and Eve had pleasure and it passed and pleasure and it passed and pleasure and it passed and you have pleasure, and it passes. So I consider, turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do who comes after the king? Only what he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. Ah, every once in a while Solomon starts to say something positive, you know. Oh, uh, the pleasure, it felt good. I, I liked the pleasure. I, my heart found pleasure in all my toil. Good all that unhappiness and vanity and stuff. He said, oh, he's wisdom. He said earlier what, that uh, wisdom with much vexation. But now he comes back to wisdom <coughs> and says, <coughs> it excels folly as light excels darkness. Pleasure is better than pain. Wisdom is better than folly. The wise man has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Okay. This is better than that. You want to keep everything that Solomon introduces. He introduces basic things that you've got to hang on to. So, wisdom is better than stupid, and pretty better than not pretty, and, and pleasure versus pain, and, and smart versus ignorant, or whatever else. You would say there are goods and there are bads. But then he says, and yet I perceive that one fate comes to them all. Then I said to myself, what befalls the fool will befall me also. Why then have I been so very wise? You could all say the same thing about pleasure. Why, have, why did I have that palace? Or all those concubines? Or all those singers? Because I'm dead. I'm, what's that phrase? Dead man walking. I mean, that's, that's all we are. We all have a terminal illness. It's called life. It will kill you futility is hunting you down. It's going to give you a disease or just let you grow old and dangle it out in front of you like, yeah, you thought you could live. You know, I thought I was going to die at 40. I'm almost 60. I've overstayed my welcome, obviously. But what what do you hang out in front of people in Hollywood? Plastic surgery? Longevity? Make them look like they're 18 when they're 50? Um... They desperately want to hang on because at some point, the old younger ones probably don't know this yet, we know, generally gesturing towards the old people, we know we're dying. We've seen it from a distance. We've perhaps even buried a parent or two. We know. It what sobers us up a little bit. I don't just mean you guys back there, but some of you young people out there. And Solomon, who's got all this money, all this pleasure, everything a man could desire, and he pursued it, and he was smart, and he realized how cool smart could be, and how much easier life became when you were smart. He said, But I'm still going to die. I said to myself, This also is vanity, for of the wise man, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Because you could be the neatest mom, father, Employer, employee, whatever else you do in life, you could be charming, witty, and dead, and slowly forgotten. And your family goes out to the graveyard of a Memorial Day and leaves plastic flowers there. Maybe they may put a stone that says something touching. What was that one of W.C. Fields? On the whole, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. I think that was. What's your epitaph going to be? Because that's the little monument. I want a mausoleum. Uh, so I trust that my friends will pick up a collection and really something grand up there. The wind star. The wind star. <laughs> a concrete wind star. I'd be fine with a concrete wind star. Up on a pedestal, marble. Why do we raise those uh, what? pyramids? You hear that the new Muslim leaders of Egypt are thinking of tearing down the pyramids because they're pagan remembrances of infidel paganism. Can you imagine? Wouldn't that be a hoot? A lot of work, too. But those were pharaohs who wanted to be remembered, and boy were they. Don't you don't know who they were? Unless you were my students.
1: Khufu, Khafre, Menkaure.
0: See, third, fourth dynasty. So maybe Solomon was right. There was an enduring remembrance because there was a test involved. And uh, seeing that in all the days to come after, come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise man dies just like the fool, this is This circular repeating of life, the weary repeating of life, the inability to seize on anything as it goes by. Really, we pretend. We build a house like this, and we build it out of materials that have a longer life than you do to pretend that you're not, and it is not, dying. It will be dust someday, hopefully after I'm dust. But we fool ourselves with those qualities. We erect big pyramids of stone, so they'll last millennia. But eventually it will be gone too. And Solomon is right. He says this this weariness, this inability to hang on, we try to cheat it, we try to cheat it, death will not be cheated. And then everything we erect, everything we do, gets handed over to somebody else. And so what does Solomon say? Dang it all to heck. So I hated life. Verse 17. Because of what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. He was a fool, Rehoboam. Yet he will be a master for all, of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Do You realize life is you. Because those two things that define life, that which you do and that which you think about what you do, only exists in you. We're not a community. We're not a kind of a, what was it, the Borg the science fiction? Uh, the Borg. are they the one mind? Yeah. OK, we're not that. You're all, you all have your, when you get burned on the stove at home, I don't feel it. I don't really care. <laughs> And when you're having a mint julep on the porch, I don't feel that either. So we don't show you are alone the repository of that of life, yourself, your identity, which you've shaped out of what you feel, what you've gained out of life in pleasures and pains, and how you think about it. And guess what? Death hunts individuals. We all feel that we're part of a society, and America goes on, and the great capitalist state keeps earning money, and you get to inherit money from your grandparents. That somehow, we try to make, by becoming part of a herd, we try to keep our identity, people identify with their ethnic groups, so that that identity of self can continue. But really, it's only you. You're really only you, and Solomon realizes that a true self-identity is just what you feel, and what you think about what you feel. I've mentioned before, I don't know if I mentioned in church, but other situations, Descartes says that I think, therefore I am, the, the cogito, and my variation of it would be, I feel, therefore it matters. And that is your beginning point of self-identity in all of you, and your own death Your own accountability before God and your own death is what you've got to deal with. You've got to measure it out. Solomon's looking at it square in the face and goes, I hate this. I hate this. I'm working so hard. I'm thinking so much. I'm going to die. And my son, Rehoboam, who's an idiot, as far as I know, is going to spoil the whole thing. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a man who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by a man who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and strain with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of pain, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his mind does not rest. This also is vanity. You know people in the business world who get like that. Like they were achieving something, going someplace, piling up a pile that, what's the phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins. It's silly. Everybody knows that's ludicrous. But that's how we act. And Solomon is going, oh, I was was thinking I was getting somewhere. I was building up a stack. And yet, and yet, I'm going to be dead. And even if I built that palace, I'm not going to be the one living in it. And I am the one that matters to me my feeling about the matter. Because while you go on in life, not only who you are as an individual, but how you go on is whether or not you seize on the fact that you are an individual with the summation of life in you, that your guilt and innocence, your standing before God, it's all about you and how, what you do with the rest of your life. Now, He says, it is his conclusion here, since I found out that pleasure was pleasurable and wisdom was better than folly, that, uh, and I'm going to die, and because I was carrying with me some sense of utility in life, in everything I was doing, and I have been proven that it will be pride from my cold dead fingers and hand it over to somebody else, and then it ceases to matter to me, All everything I did, I am denied. So what am I left with? There is nothing better for a man than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also is from the hand of God. Now, for some people who think that it's kind of a godless book, that, oh, this is part of the world from man's perspective. No, it's a very God-centered book because he's taking what we all encounter and he is pressing us to our knees in front of the way it is and saying all you're left with and all of your vain imaginings about what human beings can accomplish, what we can do, you cannot profit because you will be dead. I'm going to be dead and no more than, what am I now? If I was remarkable and ate well and looked at to my core, I believe, uh, I, I have some women in the house that do core workouts, whatever that means. Uh, I've got twice the core that they, <laughs> they have, so I will outlive them twice as long. But say, say I remarkably lasted until I was 100 and then died. I'd be just as dead and probably really difficult for the last 20 years. Now, no matter what you do, there you're going. So Solomon says, okay, let's back up, back this up. I was despairing because I couldn't put together a winning strategy. It will still kill me. So the winning strategy is to look back into the now and say, really, the task is not tomorrow. Just like our Lord says, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough trouble. Okay? You're told not to concern yourself in that direction. And Solomon's with the Lord on that matter. He says, you know, why don't you enjoy what you're doing instead of acting like you were doing something that would accomplish a profit for you? Because that man works himself silly and then dies and doesn't have it. So it might be better if you just enjoyed it now. He says, and this is the gift of God. For apart from him, verse 25, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? We pray the Lord's Prayer on occasion. Give us this day our daily bread. Who can eat? God is merciful to you every moment. You open your eyes, you'll look at the color, you look at space, you look at mass, you look at texture, you exist and have all these pleasures coming into you. All of them gifts of God, the desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, all those things are things of sensation that God made the creation to enjoy. Says so all good gifts were made to be received with enjoyment and thanksgiving. This is apart from God, who can ha- who eat and have enjoyment. For to the man, this is a key verse in 26, for to the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. All of a sudden, when you get pushed back to the immediate, Rather than the grand plans you have, rather than all the hopes and aspirations that you still trust in the chariots of Egypt, you still trust in your winning the lottery, or you're working hard enough to make a, lot, a large sum of money by the time you retire, and so you can go to Sun City or, or die in a good home, all of a sudden, you realize that God wants us to back away from those aspirations about our own greatness and live right now, live in this moment, and know that my living in this moment successfully requires that I please him. For if this is from the hand of God, because apart from him, I can't have what I eat and I can't have enjoyment, because God takes understanding, knowing stuff, understanding, and joy, and gives it to someone who pleases him. So I I can actually not worry about utility. I'm saying the futility of the situation presses me back into the moment, and the moment is lived before God. For the greatest joy in the moment, I live it before God. Because all of the temptations of the flesh and the world are all out there trying to claim some kind of power over stuff, power over your inevitable fate. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and heaping. And that's a great description of what the world's about. Shoving piles of gold into one corner. Ben was just telling me that all the gold in the world would fill two Olympic swimming pools. All the gold in the world. (laughs) Cherish that ring you have ladies or the earrings or whatever. Melt it down two big bullion blocks the size of maybe heavy realize that, what are we stacking up? Oh, we assign preciousness. You girls, you ladies, my wife has one. It's a jewelry box, right? I have my little sparklies. My little cash in case I want to run away I can cash this in and, <laughs> and, and have ready money. Keeping and gathering only to give to one who pleases God. For the man who pleases God, God wants to reward with a positive now. Not by denying the that the world is futile. He rests in that. You know, you say, well, have any... there are some elements of Ecclesiastes, we'll point them out as they come along, that are due to, you might say, the fact that it was 1000 BC and the new covenant doesn't come around for a thousand years. The, the the relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit, doesn't come around. His views about the afterlife and things like that are, are shifted or less informed. But here he agrees with Saint Paul. Paul in Romans eight says the whole creation has been subjected to, to futility. Decay and death. That's why the whole creation groans and we groan and the Spirit groans with us with sighs too deep for words. That's what that whole section's about. Now, we have a clear promise of glory in some other life, but we don't have it here. And so the futility still rests on the creation. And you're supposed to believe in the futility, and the Christian should pick up Solomon and go, okay, this is is good. This matches with Paul. This matches with the Christ. Um, Why don't you obey God and point yourself to the now and say, how do I... And the rest of the book is going to have a lot of good stuff in it about how you should be viewing the now. The first thing, and I'll have to rapidly go through this, when you realize that <coughs> pleasing God, finding joy, wisdom has to process. Remember, wisdom is better than folly. Light excels darkness. It's, it's like walking with your eyes open. You can see where you're going. Well, one of the first things you see is that the old notion of just stacking up as much pleasure as you could versus pain was not a good idea. Because there are other axes of God's creation, not just the sensation of your loins or your, your sense of beauty and art or your sense of power, your sense of a, a, a triumph or, or conquest. Uh, there are other things. One of them is, for everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. Now, I don't want you to be, didn't the birds do this? Pete Seeger, various people. That kind of just can destroy, dang, hippies. Um, But it's a great, great section. Um, Now, I want you, I, I put in red some of the words. We're not going to go through this and talk about what time is it when it's time to pluck up. What does that mean? We're not going to go into that. We're doing this in four weeks, remember. But look at that. Time to be born. Time to die. Warm thought. A time to plant. A time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill in red. Like it was a Jack Miller graphic novel. And a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Now, look at the negatives there. There's a different set of axes than just pain and pleasure. There is when, ordinate value, how valuable is this to do? How good is it to do? Just because it's pleasure, you know that I don't listen to the same symphony one time after another, unless I'm nuts. I don't pursue the same pleasures. And I also know that my ordinate value is telling me, in part, as, as to where does it happen in my frame of the movements of life, the, what we call time. this a convenient illusion of matter moving and, and rearranging itself. What's the right time for a Bible study? What's the best time to start the Bible study? 7 or 7.30? Kelly? She's going to lord this over me until I die. I know that, that I had to admit in front of people that she was more right than me. But look at the negatives. Have you found the time? There's a time for every matter. It says there's a time for those things. Time for war. A time for hate. A time to refrain from embracing. A time to tear something up. Break something down. This is our business. Verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the sons of men to be busy with. It's, it's This is our activity because we're not actually building something here. We're not actually making a lasting empire. America will fall someday. Too bad for us. Like every other empire, it's going to fall. I don't know when. Who's going to do it? Probably the Canadians. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but what you're about is right now and you're told that Wisdom is good and pleasure is good and you're supposed to enjoy life and if I'm wise and in the Lord and obedient and pleasing him I will be given the wherewithal to measure out what I'm doing in the now. How do I assign what I do? Well I assign what I do by this information. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Go back over the list and say okay when will those things be beautiful? Do I understand that? Have I, cause, because you're left with right now, folks. Now, you don't have to decide all of those questions right now. Because I've I got to decide whether it's going to be war right now or hate right now. But, but how do I create a life that finds God's guidance for the now that the right thing would be engaged in, even if it's a painful thing? Because war will never be you might say, like going to the beach. What's the phrase? War is hell. Or as Wellington said, there is nothing worse than winning a battle except losing it. That's the dead people all around. It was true in Solomon's day, David's day, Napoleon's day, our day. It never ends without people being dead, but there's a time for it. And there's a beautiful time for it. Do you understand that? Or are you going to set up your own system of running the universe where you struggle against the terminal illness you have and still die shaking your fist at heaven? Also he has put eternity into man's mind yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. This is separating one of the key things that separates you from the animals as you have a sense of duration that is eternal, you might get into after three beers the argument with your friends about, oh man, do you ever think about where God came from or, or what can You know what's how long is eternity? It's a long time, and you were thinking about it, and you don't know didly, but you know that it exists. You ever look at a calendar and realize you're looking at just an illustration of something you probably can't comprehend, even if it's till the end of the year, the idea of that coming December, do you have any idea? You know it's there. You know what it is. You just don't know what's going to happen. So how, you know we're trying to make ourselves, you might say, um, that's sort of a barrier against us going there. We know that it exists. We are tempted to try to create a life now that will make that somehow a permanent joy, but it's not going to be. God has put eternity into our hearts, also that we might not know it would come after our knowledge of time, our knowledge of duration, our knowledge that there are different arrangements of my deeds and why I do them, when I do them, how much value I give to them that makes me stand before the Lord in peace and in pleasure and in joy with his blessing. I know that there's nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Also, that it is God's gift to man that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is not some, you know, (coughs) materialist, somewhat secular mind going uh, halfway to God, why don't we just eat, drink, and be merry? Because he's saying that there is no be merry without the Lord. There is no, this is the gift. You were You were pointed to the now. You have rebelled by your conceits about what you think you can do, how you think you can build up life. And those of us who have aged we begin to realize, I cannot even squat to pick up a piece of garbage without all of my years suddenly standing in front of me, right in front of my face. Evan, you're 57. (laughs) Just because of what my knees are doing or failing to do. we're up against it and we still our rebellious nature rather than going yes Lord this is what you left me with right now can I please you right now can I understand you and understand your world so that I can do that which is good before you so that I will enjoy the right now that all my pleasures will be well arranged that my pains will be accepted in their beautiful way all the tragedies of life, the mourning, the war, the hate, the things that are negative on that list, I want them to happen in such a way that they stand before me as where God wanted them to occur. I know that whatever God does endures forever, so don't try to get out of this. This is what God has done. He has made it so. It was a gift to man that you have this task. Enjoy your life and what you're doing. Not Achieve something. Enjoy something. Okay? All the world is telling you to achieve. And I'm not trying to rip out the uh, all initiative and ambition from your life. But at least take a look at it. At least before you get ambitious and before you go out there and conquer the world and business or whatever it is you're going to do, get this worked out so you're not so much of a tool. Okay? That's the, um, that would be the warning. You don't want to become a tool of the system and then try to learn Solomon. Learn Solomon first. Learn the will of God. Learn that you've got a task for right now. You won't embitter your children, your wife, and all your friends as you learn it later when you retire. Oh, I should have probably viewed this with a bit more futility. Get the futility down and then say I'm gonna view my successes as being foisted on me. If you're successful let them be forced on you. <coughs> that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. That's a little vague. Some of the other translations say uh, he pursues. The, that." Uh, the the things that have fallen behind he pursues, um, so it may have to do with the the things that uh, uh, already has been. He goes back, and God does not lose anything. You lose everything. Mankind loses everything. We're still scrabbling around piles of dirt in the Middle East, going, "Was this the great city, Nineveh?" Uh, great. Uh, I mean, Alexander marched through to fight Darius Third at Isis, not Isis, Gogomela, marched right by the city of Nineveh, didn't know there was a city there. The great city Nineveh that Jonah had preached against was now, by Alexander's time, a pile of dirt. Did not even know. And that's what Moscow, Idaho will be someday. And probably never dug up. <laughs> I mean, Colossae, they know where it is. There are pillars, Roman pillars, lying on the top of the ground, and nobody has excavated Colossae. You think they're going to excavate Moscow, Idaho? We really need to know what people in Idaho lived like. Eh, you're going to be forgotten. Your graveyard, your dead, your plastic flowers, they'll still be there, but you will be dust a long time. But God doesn't forget. And this is another reminder okay not only do we get driven back to the now g- driven back by the the gate by the wall of futility around you and the incoming death that God has given you wisdom and pleasure and the task of pleasing him to get the best enjoyment out of now and that's the gift of God to you. point yourself at it he says moreover I saw under the Sun that in the place of justice even there it was wickedness and in the place of righteousness Even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For he has appointed a time for every matter and for every work. Remember there's a time for every matter? Solomon did not know as much about eternal things and judgment and heaven and hell as you do. But he knew good and evil. And he knew that good and evil don't exist without a judgment. You can't say there's a moral higher good than man if man can live how he wants and die and be nothing. And even though Solomon sounds like he's life is just cut off and such, he knows there's a judgment because evil exists, and the, the warnings that say on on the on the. Um, On the good side of the ledger, we encourage to enjoy life, and you could best do that by pleasing God. On the bad side of the ledger, even though we don't remember anything, God remembers everything. He seeks that which has been driven away. He will judge the living and the dead, everything man has done, whether it be good or evil. Books were written. We may be forgotten as a town. You and your moral code and your moral actions will not be. By man, they will be. They'll never dig you up and write a book about what a what an awful person you were. God's already written that book. Or God has said, "Hey, great guy. I said in my heart in regard to the sons of men that God is testing them to show them they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all his vanity. You don't. And Solomon, uh, Paul says the same thing. All creation is subject to decay and death. You are subject to decay and death. We all groan. We groan together. This is to un- for the great king of antiquity, Solomon. He had his conceits removed from him. He had tried everything and he found there was no purpose to anything because he was still going to be dead. Who knows whether the spirit of a man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. And for Solomon, he doesn't. He doesn't have that revelation. He says, who knows? But he does know there will be a judgment. He's already stated that. So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should enjoy his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So, so, that's the end of the section. There's a lot of stuff in it. You can go back and read it over. We'll cover the next three chapters next Wednesday at 7. Um, and and uh, dinner at 5.30. But uh, um, don't lose this set of information. This is his testimony of how he gets to that key place. And then there's all sorts of great thought and advice fitting under that umbrella through the rest of the book. Um, and uh, uh, you will want to remember it. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful that you have pushed on back at us in our conceits, our empires of self, or of nations, the things we think we're arriving at or achieving. We'd ask that we would be faithful to what we're doing, uh, working to please you and, and to please and help our fellow man But Lord, um, keep us from our pride or our assumptions about what we're doing, that we might live pleasingly before you, that you would give us the joy that you have commended to us in this very moment. Thanks again in your Son's name. Amen.